That is something of what discipleship is all about. It's not about just telling people what they should do, but it is giving opportunity and saying, come along with me and let's do it together, uh, which is absolutely nothing about what the sermon is, is connected to. He just, he just wanted to do it. And so you strike while the iron is hot, don't you? Tonight, uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, the Lord's Supper and what it says the, the idea of a motto uh, is, is a, a consolidation or an encapsulation of the, the values and the mission and, and the point. It is, is if you were to distill the entire idea of, of what a company is about or what an organization is about into not even a long sentence, not a mission statement, but just as short as possible, what would it, what would it be? What would it say? Uh, the motto of the United States as a, as a country. Well, what is, what is our, our national motto? In God we trust. It would, I wish that that was really uh, not only on paper, but I wish that was in the hearts of our people. But, but at least it's still enshrined in paper and at one time encapsulated more of what we believe. Um, if, if you've watched movies like The Lion King with, uh, with your kids, your grandkids, you remember as, as the, the hero of that uh, show, Simba goes off into the wilderness, they teach him a motto. Their philosophy of life condensed down to one phrase was Hakuna Matata. Uh, just life has no worries. Just, just go ahead and go through life. Probably not a very biblical worldview, but, but that's, that's the idea. Bringing it all down to just one phrase um, President Kennedy had a good one that he set forth for the country, bringing down his, his entire idea of, of, of service and being active. That's some of the things that he's known for in his leadership. How did President Kennedy put it? Ask not what your country will do for you, but, but even, even shorter, you could bring his idea down to just that last half of the sentence, but ask what you can do, should do for your country, and what we together can do for mankind. That's, those are good thoughts to build on. A company might have something like uh, the Apple Corporation with all of their iPads and iPhones and, and computers. They just say, think different. Because as we, we realize there has been a technology revolution and the whole world is different than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, before the advent of personal technology. And so they came up with this idea of think different. The Google Corporation, with, with all of the knowledge that they have about you, every time you and I put something in the computer and search or go to this website or that website, we know, of course, someone is watching, right? And so to, to allay the fears of their users and to try to, to depict themselves as the good guys, their motto is, do no evil. What about for the Christian? What about for the church? There are lots of, of, of snippets of Scripture that, that could be used to, to be a motto. We've, we've got some hanging on the walls. I, I've always liked these banners. Uh, I've liked this one in the back, a mission statement, making disciples for Jesus who are eager to serve others. Uh, it's not just a decoration. It's, it's something that when people were, were thinking about them, they said, what, what do we need to inspire us and give us an idea of what we should be about and who we should be as we leave this auditorium, as we leave these times together, having been excited by the gospel of Jesus? Uh, that, was, that was Chris's lesson this morning, right? Uh, you could sum it up with a statement like that, a fantastic lesson. I hope that that's, that's one we take to heart is what we all heard this morning. 
our motto, perhaps, the core statement and encapsulation of of what we believe, of who we are, of what we do. If we can borrow all of those things that are usually put into a few words as a statement, if we can borrow that and say, let's look at the Lord's Supper, and, and it says several things, it means several things, and I think in that one relatively short event, in that one moment where you and I are sharing the Lord's Supper, the communion, the fellowship, we're packing a lot into that one moment. And, and tonight I want to just peel back a few of the layers. I want to dig into that a little bit and see what is it that we're saying in the Lord's Supper. And, and then I want us to maybe think about is that, is that activity, is that moment, is that a good encapsulation of so much or maybe all of what we believe and what we say and who we are from the inside out? Let's look at Luke chapter 22, verse 19. We're just going to look at seven different things that the Lord's Supper says or declares, things that, that you and I communicate to all those who are listening. Uh, and this is, this is a visual thing that we do. So maybe it's not just listening with the ears, maybe it's not just speaking with the lips, but it is, it is speaking through the things that we do, and it is listening through our eyes as the things that we do and the things that we participate in with the Lord's Supper, that it is a form of communication, that it is speaking to those people who are around us immediately in the room and, and assembling with us and partaking with us, but it's also speaking to the world out there. It's also communicating to all those who care to watch and see. In the middle of the meal, Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is a memorial. The Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance, of thinking about Jesus, of considering Him. Uh, the Bible would say in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, you know, think about Him, consider Him. You've, you've, you've waded into this, this walk of faith, this journey of faith with Jesus, and, and as you and I begin to waver or begin to scratch our heads or doubt ourselves, it says the answer to that is to stop thinking about ourselves, but to focus on Him, remember Him and all that He went through and all that He endured and His faithfulness and His dependence upon God and focusing upon Him. Suddenly, our own trials seem trivial. We have not resisted to the point of shedding blood like He did. We we have a, lot, a long ways yet to go in our journey of faith. Remember Him. Sometimes the Lord's Supper seems to, the way we, we practice it, seems to have an element of, of a funeral. Uh, and, and you and I have been to many funerals, many different kinds of funerals. And some that you and I have been to have been fairly sad occasions, very somber and very dignified. And, and then there are others. There, there was, let me tell you about Betty Baker. Betty Baker was a crazy old woman in Florida, Texas, and I loved her dearly. Uh, she was a member of the church where I preached for seven years, and, and she, she was a crazy little old lady. I'm sure none of you are anything like her. 
but she was a lot of fun to be around. And, and every t- she would, she, I would get to the church building at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning and make sure everything was in its place and I had my lesson ready to go. And she might show up at 8 o'clock with a piece of chocolate cake and said, I thought I'd find you here. And she'd made herself chocolate cake for breakfast. But you know, when you're in your 80s, I guess you can eat what you want for breakfast, can't you? Just, just all sorts of fun. And, and she, she would tell us from the first, first few months of our, our being there and working with the church, she said, well, you know, I've only got two years left. I, Lord's going to call me home. I'm done in two years. And we kind of laughed. And, you know, two years later, she said, I've still just got two years. Well, you know, we were there for seven, and she was still alive. And it was two years after we left that God did call her home. But for years, I said, Betty, I want to preach your funeral. So there's nothing morbid about that, but, but there's nothing like a good funeral. You know what I mean? Uh, an opportunity to really look back at a life that has been well lived and spent in the service and love of God and, and love and encouragement of other people. And Betty had just given her life to, to, to joy and, and to sharing love with other people. And her funeral was fantastic. It was a great occasion. And so it's okay. Sometimes we're chastised um, by by well-meaning individuals who say the Lord's Supper shouldn't be a funeral. It's okay if we think of it as a funeral. It is a memorial, but not all funerals have to be downers. You can look at someone's life and celebrate the high moments in their life. You can smile at the the moments that they brought joy to you and comfort to others. And, And even in the very best of funerals, is it okay to shed a tear or two? That's not just okay, but it's entirely appropriate. So all of that spectrum of emotion and and experience that can go into a good funeral, looking back over the sum, the total of someone's life, those things are appropriate as we look at the life of Jesus. Now, as we look at his life, we don't really have all the details to know all of that story. We really just have an emphasis on those last few years. But in those few years... We have a story of love. We have a story of service. We have a story of of spirituality and of him giving himself in faith to the things of God above. And so as we look at those things and we reflect on them, it sets an example. Uh, The only life that that I I, I hate preaching a funeral for or, or don't look forward to preaching a funeral for is one that we can't draw lessons from that I can't say that the world was a better place or a family was a better family or a church was a better church because of a certain individual. But you look at Jesus, and on every, every line of his biography, there is a lesson to be learned about how you and I can have a closer relationship with God or closer relationship to each other. And so a memorial, remembering Jesus from beginning to end, and not just the few moments on the last moments on the cross, but the life of obedience that brought him, that qualified him for those final moments. All of that beautiful life. It is a moment of memorial. And so it says we are Jesus' people who are well acquainted with his story. And you go to funerals, because you appreciate the person who died or because you love the people who were loved by that person, right? Sometimes you go out of connection to, to, the, to that second set of people. And, and so that's why we, we are part of the feast, because we love Jesus and we know him and because we also loved those, love those who have loved him. Matthew chapter 26 in his 
telling of this same occasion. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27. What else does the Lord's Supper say and what does it communicate? A time of memorial but also a time of thanksgiving. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And there's there's several cups, at least history tells us that by the time of Jesus, their practice in, in sharing the Passover meal, there were, there were four different cups that they would take, and, and they all represented different things, but this. He chose to, to identify the cup that is taken with a cup of thanksgiving. And the text says, He gave thanks. The prayers that we pray in the Lord's Supper are not Uh, God, thank you for this grape juice and thank you for this bread and for the hands that prepared it and may it be nourishment for our bodies. We're not thanking for the food element, but we're thankful for what they represent. What did he just say? This this cup, the contents of it, the, the sparkling red inside, the blood of the grape, as the biblical text sometimes calls it, is what? It's the very, very blood of Jesus in representation and in symbol to us. And so, yes, in, in the idea of memorial, we look at his whole life and we, we eulogize his life. That is, we say good things about his life. But the here, we're thankful. We're thankful that he did what? We're thankful for the way he ended his life. For the direction that he set in his entire life that led to one inescapable conclusive moment that on the cross he gives his blood for us last week we talked something about sacrifice and while we did not get into a sacrifice for sin we still talked about some of the blood that is involved in sacrifice and when there is when there's this much blood shed when there's this much blood that is is removed from the body the body cannot live Jesus exchanges his very life and life force and the purity and holiness and loveliness of his life for us. And so, talking about sin and talking about price that is paid, those things are not particularly popular in our world and in our culture because to call something a sin is to shine the spotlight on, uh, seemingly the spotlight on someone else and, and you know, we're not, we're not shining spotlights on other people without ourselves stepping into that same light. But the Lord's Supper says, I am so thankful for Jesus. I'm so, so thankful for His blood that he was, he was not compelled to, to spill. He was not forced to give, but He volunteered. Sometimes you, you might hear the language of Jesus being the victim of our sin. A victim doesn't have a choice in what's taking place. Didn't Jesus have a choice? And he volunteered for that mission. He surrendered his will and his comfort to be in that place, to hang on the cross in our place, and to pay the price that is rightly ours. We're thankful because we couldn't have, we couldn't have done it not even to say we couldn't have done it as, as gracefully as he did or, or with flying colors like he did, but you and I, we, we couldn't have done it. There is no way that you and I could have died a death like his. Our death would have simply ended our story in misery as our sin had earned us 
but we're thankful to Him that He rescues us. We're thankful to Him for His blood. We're thankful to Him for forgiveness. We turn to 1 Corinthians for the rest of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, there's, there's a lot of discussion that Paul has to the Corinthian church uh, about uh, who they are as a group of people. And the Lord's Supper is something that he looks at in chapter 11 and he says, you know, your, your coming together causes more harm than good. It is not for the better, he says, that you assemble. And so if they were assembling not for the better, then they were assembling for the what? That's the opposite of better. They were assembling for the worse. They were actually, in what they were doing, and really in how they were treating one another, they were worse off spiritually for having come together as the church because they didn't understand what the Lord's Supper was supposed to say. They took the symbolism that God had provided and they put their own words in God's mouth. They said, we'll make it say whatever we want it to say. The abuses at Corinth were not, it's not that they weren't having unleavened bread and they forgot their welches. It wasn't the emblems or the activity. The problems at Corinth was the attitude and what was being communicated through the Lord's Supper. And so we'll see in some of the instructions and descriptions that Paul gives to them what the right mindset and really the right heart set for us ought to be in the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11 and the first part of verse 26. What does the Lord's Supper say? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Christians are a people for whom the death of Jesus, as we've already mentioned, it's central. You don't have a story without, you don't have a gospel without the death of Jesus. He dies in our place. It's not something we can avoid. In fact, as, we're, as we are preaching the gospel, doesn't Paul say in this same book, it's about death and burial and resurrection without the death of Jesus, which represents the price paid which stands up and against, over and against the sins that you and I have committed in our life and the pit that we've dug for ourselves. There's, there's no Christianity without death. And so when you and I speak of the death of Jesus, we speak of sacrifice, we speak of love, we speak of exchange, we speak of, of a God who is not willing to abandon even those who are rebellious against Him. He's not willing to abandon us to our sin, but He pursues us. And so we remind one another that this is the Jesus who died for me and who died for you. But the last half of that same sentence, we proclaim the Lord's death, how long? Until He comes. That means that as we, as we are speaking, as we are proclaiming through our sharing in the Lord's Supper, that, that we're, we're doing it in anticipation. That we're not doing it simply looking back at Jesus and His cross. It's not simply looking back in our minds and our corporate memory to what He has done, but we're looking forward to what He will do. We serve a risen Savior. That's also part of the gospel story. In fact, it's really not gospel to say that Jesus died 
Everybody dies. That's, that's not impressive. But what's impressive is that he didn't stay dead. It was impossible for death to keep a hold on him, Peter would say in Acts chapter 2. So here we have, have this proclamation, Jesus died, but he's coming again. Just as sure our, that, that, as we are that he died is that he's coming again. That is our hope. That, that hope, hope in my understanding of Christianity, hope is an ethical word. That means hope gives us a lens uh, through which to see this life and through which to understand how we ought to live. That the resurrection says that life is not over when your heart stops beating or when the brain activity is done or when, when you and I are, are six feet under the ground. Life is not over because God still has a claim on us. That the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, we read this a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 2, or chapter 1, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that he is working towards us in this life. And it's the same power that he'll use to claim us when he comes again. And so the Christian testifies. We share in this activity we, we drink this cup and we, 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 we break this bread together and we eat it together because Jesus is still alive. Dead people don't come back, but Jesus is alive. And it's part of our faith, it's part of our story, it's, it's part of our future, but it's also part of our, our current life now. The fact that Jesus is still alive changes how I live now. The fact that I will live again has an effect on how I live now. And so my anticipation of the good things that God has in store for me in the future works its way backwards to my present. And it gives me a lens through which to see the world and to understand what God is doing and to change my life or have my life changed by this power in the gospel. Chapter 11 and verse 28 Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself therefore and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And the New Testament isn't supposed to be full of, of doom and gloom and passages that scare us, but this is one that's, that's there's kind of a boogeyman, at least it sounds like in this passage. Because if you don't do it right, it's just what it sounds like, if you don't do it right, judgment is waiting for you. And so and many times we've heard the prayer, uh, and, and we, we've heard the prayer before we share in the Lord's Supper, uh, Father, help us to take this in a worthy manner. And for most of the people praying that prayer, and it's not an attack on their intelligence, but it's just a confession that sometimes our theology has not been as deep as it ought to be. For us, the worthy manner has been, God, let us examine ourselves so that we are worthy to share in the Lord's Supper. That here we are so, so reflective upon the life of Jesus, and here we are so thankful for, for what He has done and for His blood Jesus, I, I just hope I'm worthy of all that you've done for me. And if I, if I look at my life this past week, if I look back from this Sunday past seven days, have I, have I done anything really bad? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I, have, I done, have I broken any of the big ten, you know? And if I have, then I'm, I'm not worthy enough. And I've seen people let the Lord's Supper 
the elements just pass on by because this week I'm not worthy. And friends, the easiest way to probably begin to chip away at that thinking is to ask this question, when have we ever been worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus? We haven't ever been. And then on our own merits, won't ever be worthy of the sacrifice. But it doesn't say that you as a person should be worthy. It says the way that you take it should be worthy. It's an adverb there. It says take it worthily. It's not the taker who is worthy. It's the way that he takes it. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that at least gives us a different direction to investigate. And if you've thought about all the, if you're familiar with, with the issues at Corinth and kind of thought through those and remember his, his criticism of them that says when you come together, it is when you're coming together to share in the Lord's Supper, it's not for the better and the implication that it's for the worse. That's where the hang-up is. How they're taking this. And you remember if you've read through this whole context and I wish we had time to go verse by verse through it all but we just don't have to time I think the way to understand the issue at Corinth and what's really the problem is instead of wading through verse by verse, is just, is just fast forward to the end and maybe we'll see in his conclusion, in his solution, we'll see what was really the issue. Do we remember what Paul's solution for all of their heartache over the Lord's Supper was? At the end of this section he'll say, therefore, wait for one another. That's his answer. Well, we haven't discussed what the, the problem was so much, but, but that's his answer. Wait for one another. Now, as a parent, there are times that I, I come in the house or come in the room uh, and, and the boys are just at the end of receiving the discipline or the instruction. I missed the blow up. I missed the fuss. I missed the fight, but I heard the instruction. Can I sometimes work my way back and kind of figure out what's, what's been the problem based on the solution that's given? If the answer is stop hitting your brother, what can I suppose? They're, they're little boys. They do it. So, wait for one another. One goes ahead. One gets drunk while the other has none. Those are situations that Paul describes. What should be a moment of, of waiting, what should be a moment of dignity for people in, in various social classes, Maybe, maybe some of the haves and some of the have-nots as they're all coming together to share what they have in, in, this, in this meal that is called by Paul in this letter called the communion. Communion is an interesting word. It's, it's, it's a churchy word. We, we only use communion when we're in church. But uh, the same word that is found for communion and used for communion is often translated in the Bible as fellowship sharing, participation. And you see, it's not something that I can do by myself, but when I do it, I'm, I'm doing it with other parts of the body. And the idea from Greek originally was an economic word. It was, it was about investors in, in a common enterprise. And so I'm, I'm putting in my pieces and you're putting in your pieces and we're co-investors. And as we have invested, equal shares, We are also equal beneficiaries. We have an equal place at the table. Now, when you and I look out at the world, maybe we look out at the parking lot, something as simple as that, and we see that, you know, somebody's got a 16-year-old pickup with a dent in the side, 
he might not be, that's me, by the way, uh, he might not be as, as important or valuable. He might not have as many shares in this enterprise, whatever it is, as the guy who's driving a brand new Lexus. You know, that's, that's how the world judges, right? But for the church, how should we judge? How should we look at the body of Christ? Not based on economics, not based on the color of skin, not based on, well, what did you bring to potluck? You know, I've, I've, seen, I've seen that sometimes. Well, you just brought green beans. Well, I brought a roast. You know, which one is bigger and better? There's all sorts of ways that you and I can be distracted and begin to introduce an idea of judgment against other people. But here, show others dignity and respect. Show them that they have an equal place at the table. And I kind of feel like it's uh, the Lord's Supper is something like going to Grandma's house uh, for, for one of those big meals. Maybe it's a big family meal. Maybe it's, it's Easter or Thanksgiving or one of those times when, when all the cousins come. And uh, once you're promoted from the kids' table at least, and you're at the grown-ups' table, is there anyone who has an inferior spot? not supposed to be. And if, if, let's just say, two cousins or two brothers began to fuss at that table, Grandma comes around with the wooden spoon from the kitchen, and what does she do? Whacks them on the back of the head. When you're here at this table, what don't you do? You don't fuss and you don't fight because here you belong. And it doesn't matter the squabble that the two brothers or cousins or whoever they are might have between each other. Who has declared here at this place there will be no fussing and fighting? Well, Grandma said it, so you don't argue. If you want a place at that table, if you want any mashed potatoes, you don't argue. And Jesus, kind of in the same way, says if you want your share at this table, if you want to be part of this, then you respect the others whom I have invited because they have an equal opportunity and an equal share in what we're doing. So partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That doesn't mean that we say, oh God, this week I hope I've been worthy, but it says, God, I see that person on the other pew. I see that person on the other side of the auditorium. I see that other family member. And I don't begin to calculate all the ways that I'm better than he is and all the ways that I've done more than she has. But I recognize that person and I say, I'm glad you're at the table. When we have a, an assembly of people as large as we do in this room, it's kind of hard to literally gather around the table. But isn't that the language that we use? We say, let's, let's all gather around the table. And it's symbolic, but it's a whole meal of symbols. We ought to keep that in mind. We, whoever eats and drinks this uh, cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. If you and I look askance at someone while we're doing this, if we allow these thoughts of judgment to creep in and say, well, they don't really belong at this table. They shouldn't be here. Who, who's judged for that? You and I are judged when we say someone whom God has invited to the table has no right at the table. God does not appreciate bullies who push other people away from his table. So let a person examine himself. That is, make sure that we're, we're as open-hearted and as welcoming as God is. 
Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, and when we talk about the body of Christ, or is there at least a couple ways that we can understand that idea, the body of Christ? And when, I was a, when I was a child and I watched my mother sitting next to me as, as the Lord's Supper was being passed, she would often have her Bible open to Matthew chapter 27, the, the story of the crucifixion, and she would be focusing on the picture of Jesus on the cross, that mental image, because focus on the body, discern the body. I need to be concentrating very much on the picture of Jesus on the cross, but, but at least my understanding of this how else can we understand the term body of Christ? It's the body of the church. Those who have been brought together under the headship and lordship and messiahship of Jesus. And he says, I want you to judge the body. That's discern or judge. That is, I want you to look around and I want you to see all these people and smile and nod just like Jesus is smiling and nodding that he sees his people assembled together. So the Lord's Supper says that we see ourselves as part of the greater whole. Chapter 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And so when we take the Lord's Supper, you know, it's, it, again, it's, it goes back to, to that hardship, the, the disadvantage of having a congregation this large is that we can't all literally gather around the table. And you know, we, we sit back there in that corner and I have no idea who sits over here. I've never met those people. Well, yeah, Chadwell sit over there. Hi, I'm Levi. I go to church here too. Participation. And in a meal that is full of, of symbols, and it's full of us, of us doing more and engaging our minds and our hearts more than just our tongues and our stomachs. And in all of this, this beautiful picture, you and I are also speaking a unity from that side of the room to that side of the room. And from city to city and from state to state and country to country and continent to continent. Every week, Christians all around the world are doing what? They're sharing in this same meal. And what are they saying? They're saying, you and I belong at the table. And then, friends, there's not a table big enough, a physical table for us all to gather around. But in the picture, in the symbolism of sitting at the table where there is only one place of honor and one place of headship, and Jesus sits there and he invites all the rest of us to sit around at our equal stations from all over the place. Through all of time, you know, there's, there's really a sense in which you and I are participating every week, not only with the people in the same place and building and state and country and, and in, in the 24-hour period where they've done it ahead of us in time zones and behind us, but also even these Christians at Corinth when they took the Lord's Supper and they spoke the same things through what they were doing and they were confessing the same Jesus and confessing the same unity of body. And we say what? I'm part of the same body. And we declare our unity together. Not because we were smart enough to figure it out, 
But where does our Christian unity come from? From Jesus who invites us to the table. We said there's one place of honor at the table and he is the one who decides who gets to come and, and who still has to make their way there. And in that sense, you and I are uniting with him and if he is our brother and if God is our father, if, if God is my father and God is your father, then that, what does that make us? This would be a really good place. If I was in Texas, this would be a really good place for an Arkansas joke, but I, I shouldn't do that here. But we are united, united with Christ and therefore united with each other. Last thing we'll look at tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not all those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And what do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything or that the idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not, for God, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He said you're at the table... And who you eat with says something about, uh, your choice of company says something about the things that you value, about who you want to be associated with. Uh, Who is the Lord of your table? Who is the provider of your feast? Under whose banner do you sit? Where do you find your identity? And he says, when you choose to eat at the table of the Lord, when you choose to be a part of that communion that is not only fellowship with Him, but fellowship with all these others who have come, when you choose to speak these things that have been spoken through the ages, when you are thankful for the blood of Jesus, when you are mindful and remembering the life of Jesus, all of these things, you are making a choice. I eat His food. I depend on Him. Man does not live by bread alone, but... If he does live at all, what does he live on? The very words that God speaks. Jesus would say, and I'm not trying not to mix the Bible's metaphors. I don't think that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and if you have to eat me, um, if you don't eat and drink my flesh and my blood, you can have no part of me. I don't really think that's a direct reference to the Lord's Supper. But the underlying ideas are there that you and I take our spiritual nourishment from him. And here in this Lord's Supper, we say, I choose to feed my soul from the table of God. And I choose to be a part of that communion and that fellowship. And when you're at somebody else's house, when you're in somebody else's home, if you and I were ever to be in the the castle of some king, you show that man respect and deference and honor for what all he has given you. And friends, in this way, you and I look to Jesus. And we say, I, I want to be part of who you are. I am proud to be a participant at your table and to know you. Isn't it neat when you get to meet somebody famous? I got to, I got to go uh, visit with some people in Little Rock this last week, and I got to meet a, 
in my world, a pretty famous person, a Bible professor at one of our Christian colleges, and, and I had supper with him, and I took a selfie with him because, hey, I met somebody in my world that's famous. You and I, every week, we get to sit down and have a meal with Jesus. And it would be completely appropriate for us to nudge our neighbor and say, hey, guess who I saw at lunch today? I had lunch with Jesus. And more than that, I had lunch with his whole family, and they're pretty good people. I think I'll go back next week and share in all that again. So friends, these are some of the things that are important to Christians that are part of the very DNA of who we are at the core of the identity of God's people, love and fellowship in Jesus. And this is what we say every week when we share in the Lord's Supper. We got a song of encouragement to sing Friends, if you need our prayers, if you need to be drawn closer into this fellowship and into, uh, into all these things that the Lord's Supper says, that you can be part of the family of God in a very real and tangible way, if there's any way that we can pray for you and encourage you in your faith, let us know now as we stand and as we sing.